Welcome back to the Sustainability Talks podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Sheehan, Managing Partner at ETF Partners. ETF Partners is Europe's oldest and leading venture capital firm focused on backing businesses that deliver what we call sustainability through innovation. Last time, we spoke with Lord John Brown, the ex-CEO of BP. He shared his insights and predictions on the future of energy in a world going digital. It's a fascinating episode, so do make sure to listen if you haven't already done so. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Vikram Gandhi, professor at Harvard Business School, to discuss investing, risk, reward, and impact. Leading this conversation are my co-hosts and partners at ETF, Rob Ganisa and Remy Detonak. So uh, again, welcome Remy, uh, my partner at ETF, uh, and also uh, Vikram. Um, and um, I, I think we should first start by introducing Vikram. So uh, Vikram, I've known for over 30 years. I was a, a bright young kid uh, 30 years ago coming out of Harvard, and I was starting as a financial analyst at Morgan Stanley. And there was this impressive graduate from Harvard Business School who was my associate, none other than Vikram Gandhi. Um, after 23 years uh, in investment banking, both at uh, Morgan Stanley and, and Credit Suisse, um, I think you're in New York, I think you're in Asia, uh, and uh, spending a lot of time actually in India, uh, you've gone back to, to teach at Harvard, which is fantastic, the Harvard Business School. Um, and uh, you have a lot of stories to share, um, and you're, you're heavily involved with lots of different things right now, from being uh, a senior advisor to the, uh, the Canadian pension plan, uh, to also teaching uh, at Tsinghua University, the business school there and finally doing a lot of impact work in India. So um, you know, it's very impressive, the, the career that you've led. Um, and frankly, this is a great moment for me because as a graduate of the Harvard Business School, you know, the professors there used to always ask me a lot of questions. And I finally get the question of Harvard <laughs> Business School professors. So this is just fantastic. This is this has really made my day. Um, this is like the, the cold call moment for you, huh? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm really pleased by this. Um, but uh, but I was going to start, you know, you, you had three optimists uh, on the uh, on the last panel. Um, there's a wall of money. Uh, there's a will to deploy that money. Uh, but come on, Vikram, uh, you're somewhat cynical. You're sitting in the United States today. You really believe in all this or is it uh, somewhat overhyped? First of all, uh, Rob, thank you very much and to ETF. And I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. I think there is there is a fair degree of skepticism. I mean, clearly there's a wall of money. There's um, an understanding that these are major issues that, that need to happen or need to be dealt with. But I, the the issue from my perspective is that are the risk adjusted returns there, are uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, the kind of facilitating environment from the government, from you know the uh, policy perspective there to encourage investment like this, and so I think that that clearly there's been a lot more money that's been that's that's being channeled towards this, but they clearly remains a fair degree of skepticism as well. And, and I think that's what we need to kind of deal with. Um, you know, we, we see, we've seen in, in terms of data, um, over $30 trillion of assets under management now are, have some sort of an ESG overlay, which is fantastic. I mean, that's the size of the equity market in the U.S. So the size, the numbers are big. But if you, if you actually break down the $30 trillion, you know, 20 trillion of that is negative screens, which is people not investing in certain stocks that they don't like, as opposed to proactively allocating capital towards uh, productive exercises in terms of uh, new energy and, 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 so, and so forth. We, we are making tremendous strides in the right direction. I also totally agree with the fact that 
you know, you've got to have a public policy posture uh, like Uli and Christian talked about, which encourages private capital to come in. And that's uh, very, very critical. But we need more private capital to come in. And, and I think that's still not happening more, in a more proactive manner as opposed to negative screens. I just don't want to invest in this, so I'm going to move on. Uh, listen, so I understand that you, you, you literally started the uh, impact investing uh, uh, class at uh, Harvard a few years back. Don't you think that we have a problem with uh, ESG and impact investing? Meaning... Uh, For, for as long as we use the word of impact investing, then it means that this is yeah. perceived as a yeah. sideline uh, or minor class of yeah. uh, asset management. And we will have yeah. only really succeeded when it will be investing. That's it. And meaning ESG Correct. and impact will just be uh, embedded. So when do you foresee that to happen? Yeah. No, that, that Remy. Thanks for asking that question. So when I when I actually I got involved. So let let to focus on the academic side since our last speakers were looking more at the macro government side. Even in my mind, actually educating younger folks to appreciate everything that's happening in the world and the power that capitalism and private capital combined with government policy and philanthropic capital can play. And I and I want to emphasize that all three of those areas have an enormous role to play to come together to make this happen. This is not a one solution by one source of capital. And my, my whole philosophy was that, can we not really bring more awareness on the part of young leaders? Like, like I say at HBS, you know, we educate leaders that make a difference in the world. You know, Rob is one of them. Um, and there are a few others on the panel here as well. Um, is that can we not bring much more awareness on this topic to that? That's how I got involved with HBS five years ago. I, I developed a whole new course, and we, we call it Investing Risk, Return, and Impact. We consciously stayed away from it, from calling it an impact investing course. And I know a lot of funds, including like ETF, have stayed away from the word of impact because as soon as you talk about impact, it's like, oh, there must be some subsidized returns. There's an element of philanthropy. There's this, that, and the other. And so I totally get that. And, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to knock philanthropy. There is a massive role for philanthropy here. But if you're trying to bring in fiduciary capital, institutional capital, which actually cannot be sacrificing returns for the greater good. So you've got to be focusing on, a, on, on an investment thesis that brings both risk and return. But then we brought in impact as well, saying, look, do we actually need to sacrifice returns and bring an impact as well? So the whole course is called Investing Risk, Return, and Impact. And, and you're absolutely right. That question is, like, why does impact ESG be this little silo on the side that needs to be brought into a course? But I, I, I think uh, for all the folks who are on, on the call here and for all of you, when you try to bring in a new concept, If you try and just bring it in from the top down and like jam it into everything that's being done, it probably doesn't work. So you, you incubate it on the side, you experiment with it, you develop a lot of data which suggests that this actually works. And then over a period of time, you integrate it into the mainstream. And that's, that's my goal. I mean, I, I, I say this very openly that, you know, hopefully five, maybe, maybe it may take longer, but five years from now, my course is redundant. I mean, there shouldn't be a course like this. It should be in every investing course, in every operating course. Uh, how you think about ESG, how you think of impact is 
an integral part of that course and my course should just be like written off. And and that's my goal actually is to write my course off. <laughs> well, Vikram, I won't write you off just yet because I have a few more questions. Um, but when I'm thinking about risk, reward and impact, I think about measurement immediately. Um, and in the last panel, yeah. uh, Ueno-san from, from Komatsu had a question around how you should think about measurement. Um, and you know, he was talking about the Danish growth fund. Uh, should you focus on the amount of CO2 that your investments are abating? Should you think about the number of jobs you're creating? Should you think about GDP growth, yeah. right? Um, I guess you yeah. can also say the same thing about a pension fund investor, you know, the different metrics that, that he or she should be looking for. When, when you're teaching this yeah. at Harvard, how do you think about measurement? Uh, in the context of uh, risk, no. So in our in our in our in our class, you know, we've got five modules. We have an introductory module, which this and this is for the MBA class. And actually, just for the benefit of this audience, we're developing a HBS online course, which is which will be ready in the next twelve months, just because there's been so much demand for it uh, for executives, for financial advisors, and for others. And that'll be kind of in a more online module. But as far as the MBA course goes. We've got five modules. We have a module which deals with an introduction, then a module on private markets and how do you invest. And that's where we have a wonderful course on on uh, ETF and and on e leather. So just for the benefit of the audience, we wrote it. You know, I I, I usually you, you use your HBS alum, and in this case, I said, hey Rob, you owe me one. I you I need to write a course on one a case on one of your your uh, your 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 investee investment company. So we wrote a case on e-leather and it's actually going to be really interesting to teach that case this semester, this coming semester, which we will. They had a massive upturn and now you got the airline industry and like what happens and still they're doing wonderful things, but like what happens in a company like that? So it's such a fantastic kind of learning experience for the students. So we have a, a private markets module and then we have a public markets module where we talk about generation and calsters and some of the large pension plans and engagement. And then we have a module on, on measurement. And so to your question, you know, measurement is a very interesting topic, which we've de dealt with a lot. And you've got like a whole spectrum, right? So we've got a case which deals with RCTs. I mean, you can go down and do a randomized control trial on, on any intervention that you have. It's probably the gold standard. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money and over multiple years. That's one. The second extreme is, hey, this feels like impact, so it must be impact, so I'm an impact investor. And a lot of family offices go that way. And then there's a whole spectrum in the middle. I mean, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, and you should correct me, but that what our case on ETF talks about is that you'll try to do some pretty deep impact analysis, try to figure out like every investment, how, how is it actually going to impact the environment? And then realize that just just too much work, and it just doesn't the return on the effort involved is just not there, and so you're going to make it in you know scale it down a little bit. So we we actually are very clear and conscious that the fact is that whether you're called an impact fund, you know ETFs not called an impact fund, and lots of our other kind of cases that we write are not called impact funds, but is there an intent in addition to generating a market based return? Is there an intent to move the needle on an important societal issue? And if there is, in my mind, that's an impact fund. And then the next question is, well, just like you measure your returns, how are you measuring your impact returns? And equally importantly, how aligned are you with the entrepreneur that you're investing in to achieve that? And I think there, there's, there's no right formula for that. 
Uh, there's no right answer. It's, it's a whole spectrum. And I think you guys appreciate that more than anybody else, because I would say that you probably are more on the lighter side of the spectrum in terms of figuring out how, how impactful your investment, I may be wrong, so correct me, versus some others who are more like, I, I need this report and I need this and I, that's how I'm going to report to my board. And that's how I'm going to, you know, get back to you with additional investment. Yeah, I think actually, uh, Vikram, it's a bit of a journey, right? Uh, as you were saying, yeah. so in the early days, it was very uh, meticulous, but it would uh, bring uh, false uh, answers. Um, so I think, yeah. uh, you know, you have to be very careful of applying some very extensive methodology that produces the, the false result. Um, and as you said, uh, you know, we went to a, a more, okay, what's the big impact that, that we're trying to achieve with these companies? Uh, now we tie everything back to the uh, uh, UN sustainability goals, uh, and we have underlying metrics Correct. from our companies. Um, and I think that's been the, the right approach for us. Um, and it turns out we're still leading, uh, I would say, when it comes to uh, how a lot of people are looking at things. Um, but right, you know, and, you, and you have to have a balance. You know, you got to you got to deal with your LPs, all, a lot of whom are on the call here and want to get some report. You got to deal with what's important to you as a fund management team, and then also from the social entrepreneur. I mean you got to be aligned with what their mission in life is, but also not overburden them with, I, you got to report on this, that, and the other, and they spend half their time figuring out how to report to you as opposed to running their business. So I, I think it's, it's a very, it's a very fine, delicate act. And you got to go, you got to draw a balance between the, you know, the, what I would say, the, the, uh, the impact uh, diligent, you know, the, the hardcore impact people versus the more lighter, and then just try and figure out the balance there. And um, Vikram, uh, even uh, before we, we, we talk about uh, metrics, uh, don't you think that we have a, a bigger problem uh, with capitalism in the way we, we assess value creation uh, from an economic uh, theory yeah. viewpoint? So it's a, it's a long and a very big question, which means that the economic rule and the economic calculation as it is teach in, in business school were developed long ago, more than two centuries ago by, uh, by um, uh, David Ricardo and uh, the French guy, Jean-Baptiste C., eh, first liberal uh, economist mm. who theorized value creation. And they basically started from the assumption that natural resources are infinite, so no need to amortize them. And that there is no cost of any kind of externalities, which is, by the way, a very bad word to, to describe the way we kill the, the planet. So there is no need to provision for these uh, uh, damages that, uh, that we are doing. And, and so, in a way, it comes back to Patrick's question uh, earlier on. Is capitalism right and legitimate to help solve this uh, Armageddon challenge that we are facing today? And you, as... Uh, as, a, as an economist and Harvard teacher and policy advocate, what do you think? What do you want to do about it to try to change yes. drastically uh, this rule? You know, the fundamentals of capitalism are still alive and well, and I would subscribe to that as well. Uh, but they need tweaking. You know, one of my colleagues, Rebecca Henderson, has just re recently uh, written a book called uh, Reimagining Capitalism. And it wasn't about, like, I got a nix capitalism. It was about how do you reimagine it? And, and I think the reimagining of capitalism is exactly what you said right now, Remy, which is that, you know, you have, you have 
uh, it, it's not a freewheeling kind of environment that you operate in. You, there's a reason why you have taxes. There's a reason why you have uh, rent. There's a reason why all these economic things that exist. But what has, and it's it's only in the last 40, 50 years, it's from the 60s, when emissions, let's take, since this is a ETF, is a very climate-focused organization, um, is that it's only in the 60s where the emission levels are so skyrocketed with absolutely no taxation on them and no cost of the externality that it's created this, this what, what Mark Carney calls is this tragedy of the horizons. You know, it's, it's a classic tragedy. If you, if you go through economics, it's the tragedy of the commons problem. It's that it's, it's everybody's problem, but it's actually nobody's problem in the near term. And so it's it's nobody's real problem, but if the problem keeps on eating, it becomes everyone's problem. And the tragedy of the horizons is just a different kind of evolution of the tragedy of the commons, which is that you have a generational horizon. And so what I'm very encouraged about, just to be clear, including my own children who are in their 20s, is that they are not sitting back. They are pushing. They are pushing from a variety of fronts. And and it's not about saying, oh, we need to become socialist or we need to change our system of government or anything else. It's about there's got to be a different element as to how corporations hold themselves accountable. And the way they're doing that is multiple fold, right? Most of these people are customers. You know, you see this big trend of, of folks buying things, which companies actually are much more conscious about what they're doing with the, with the environment. They, in our, in our recruiting and our interviewing process, we see that, that students starting, are starting to favor working at companies that are much, have a much broader, better mindset on these issues. So there's the employee piece. And then you have, and, and I think what's happened with COVID in the last nine months is there's a bigger, bigger focus on what you're doing with your communities, what you're doing with your supply chain, what you're doing with your healthcare. So these are, these are, you know, it's, it's, um, you're taking the Milton Freedom thing that you know the the you know the social purpose of business is to make a profit, maybe, but the, the, to make a profit, there are so many other things that need to be factored in. And you, if you're going to make a profit, even if you accept that for a second, and because there are a lot of folks who still believe that at HBS too, by the way. So we have, as we should, we are an academic institution, so we have enormous debates on this topic. That even if you believe that that is the purpose of profit. You have to actually measure profit in an appropriate manner. You cannot measure profit on anything that comes as income, but all the expenses and the costs that you're throwing out in the world are not factored into that profit. It's as simple as that. So take that profit motive, and and that's where I think Uli mentioned this whole issue of our impact-weighted accounts initiative that we're doing at HBS, which is exactly that, which is measure the cost of doing business and charge companies for the cost of doing business. If you are emitting tremendously and not dealing with that problem, that is a cost of doing business and you should be taxed for it. And it should be factored out. The social purpose of being of, of doing uh, of business is making profit, sure. But let's measure profit correctly. What is the profit that you're actually making? And then let companies and investors value you accordingly. So I think that's where we're going. I mean, I think it's, I'm very much believer in capitalism and everything else, but I think it needs to be tweaked in terms of how we measure and manage it. What you are referring to when you are talking in, in, your, in your class or interview about value and values, 
Uh, and and I Correct. guess what what you are answering to people who tell you that uh, ESG investment is is great, but well, ESG compliance is coming with a big overlay of inefficiencies, and and therefore uh, this is why ESG companies still do not outperform the market in pure financial terms. This is uh, how you are addressing the question. Well, not really. No, I, I think that's not true. Actually, the the um, the uh, but it's a it's a good question to provoke me. But so thank exactly. you. <laughs> that's our job. <laughs> um, I, I think the uh, you I, I think I, the way I think about values and value are two two different ways. And I is that there there are there are family offices and where it's your own money, and and a lot of these negative screens and things like that. Is an expression of value, values, which is that hey, look, if I don't want to invest in tobacco stock, or I don't want to invest in alcohol stocks, or I don't want to invest in stocks which are go against my religious beliefs or against my whatever belief, I'm not going to invest in it, and I really don't give a damn about the negative, if any, financial implication of that because it's my money. I don't have a fiduciary obligation to anybody but myself, and that's where the family office kind of thing comes in, and it's kind of critical. But when you go to where the most of the money is in fiduciary assets like pension plans, endowments, uh, etc., you know, or, or asset managers who are managing money on the behalf of these kind of fiduciary asset owners, you can't express your values. I mean, it goes against the principles right now of what the law is. I mean, the law could change, and that's different. And but in my mind, the value argument is equally important. I mean. If you are a pension plan owner and you are investing through funds or investing directly, and for example, one of my clients is a Canadian pension plan investment board, you know, when they talk about a quarter, they're not talking about 90 days. They're talking about like 25 years. That's a quarter for them. And if you don't actually factor in climate risk, the risk of, of poor governance, the risk of how your employ how you operate in your employees and, and your community, the, all the ESG factors into your analysis, you probably are making bad investment decisions. So this is nothing about, hey, I'm trying to do good for the world or whatever. And maybe it is doing good for the world, but that's not what this is about. This is about making better investment decisions. And what has been very hard traditionally is to how do you actually incorporate good governance into your kind of financial projections or how do you even make the assessment how do you factor in you know what what's going to happen in climate 20 years from now what the implications are for you know both your transition risk and your physical risk in in the investment you're going to make and so these are these are that's where i kind of get in the value that actually if you are smart and figuring out how to actually do that a it's going to be a fabulous risk management tool a lot of firms are doing that but equally, it could be a massive alpha generation uh, opportunity, which is that you identify companies that are doing this well and go after those. And, and, and it's not necessarily reflected in the stock price of those companies or the value of their private companies and, and go after them. And I think ETF is, you know, while you're, you're focused on more on new technologies and stuff like that, that's part of the game here, right? Is to really figure out, you know, who, who gets it. Who gets it that this this is not about doing good? This is about good investing, and and so I, I think that's where I distinguish this values versus value. It's very hard for a fiduciary to be talking about values. You you saw that in the Department of Labor thing right now, where they said you can't factor in 
you know, things which are non-financial. And my response to that when they came out in June was, yeah, true. But actually, if you are a pension plan and you don't factor in climate and some of these other things into your investment analysis, you actually are violating your fiduciary obligation. So I, I think those are, in my mind, I, I know a lot of family offices, billion dollar plus multifamily offices. I'm sure there are a lot of LPs and ETF who fall in that category. They don't want to invest in certain categories. They're not going to do some financial analysis about it. They just don't want to invest in them. And that's fine because that's their money. But I don't think pension plans and endowments and all can actually go down that path. Hey, hey Vikram, I have to ask your uh, Department of Labor comment. In two months' yeah. time, you think the rules are going to start to change? New administration? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I think clearly the mindset of the administration, you know, I mean, it's been clear. Biden's made that, um, that, that they're going to go back to the Paris Accord and, and really become part of the whole uh, fabric of, of addressing climate change as opposed to being, you know, on one side of the whole discussion. But if I look at, and this may be controversial, but if I look at the final ruling of what the Department of Labor came out with, you know, so they came out with something in June, which basically said, you know, you can't factor in anything that's non-financial in your analysis. And the reason, my understanding, speaking to a lot of them over there, is that clearly, you know, it's it's, it's the administration kind of pushing it. But if you just kind of forget all that and just be clinical about it, is that there's been this massive increase in ESG products huge and and people can make a lot of arguments about greenwashing and everyone just ESG ESG to get to raise uh, more assets under management and their concern was that that suddenly this would become one of those things where trustees would say oh well you know we want to do good and let's put all these ESG products in there and like stop thinking about these things because that's like the kind of fat of the day if you will so, so i can I can understand where their concern was coming out to bring it up, which is say, look, ultimately you are a fiduciary and you got to figure out, you know, what makes sense as a risk adjusted return for your, for your pensioners, as opposed to, you know, investing based on your personal beliefs or on some policy objectives. And I, and I actually totally subscribe to that. The, the reason, the, the problem with that ruling, or at least the initial thing was that you have to totally ignore everything that has to do with non-financial issues. And they bucketed non-financial issues at ESG. So the fundamental, and I, I'm a I'm a academic and all that, so I don't want to get into politics, but the fundamental issue with bucketing ESG as non-financial is that that's ridiculous. It is actually fundamentally financial. <laughs> if you, like I said before, ESG needs to be translated into your financial statements because poor governance can destroy a company. We've seen that multiple times over the last five, 10 years, you know, if you are, if you're investing in a company, which is, you know, has all its uh, commercial real estate assets on the coastline of Florida, you got to factor in climate as to what the implications of that asset value are going to be. So all, all, all these things. So is that, that's, and, and that's what we wrote back. And so what they came back with was actually not, not that, not that wrong, which is that, you know, you you got to be area fiduciary, not factor in non-financial things. But if you think you need factor in ESG as, aspects because it it kind of is important to making long, but they still call them non-financial, which I have a problem with because these are not non-financial. But that that they, that it's important to factor them into you know your longer-term asset valuation decisions. You can do that. 
so quite honestly, I'm not sure how much of that can actually change. What needs to change and what may change if the new government comes in is that still trustees are very concerned about sticking in ESG funds, like we are doing a 40K, part of K, is that putting in an ESG fund or something which says ESG or climate-oriented, et cetera, into the options? Because if that fund underperforms, that they potentially could be liable, like, hey, you put this fund in there because, you know, it wasn't for financial reasons, but because you were trying to do, you know, some other social reason, which is not, again, true, but... You know, people are risk averse in America, particularly with all the litigious nature and there've been a bunch of lawsuits and this and that. There was another, I'm not sure whether you saw this, but a lawsuit in Australia, which was filed by a pensioner. It just came out two days ago. A pensioner filed a case against the Australian pension plan saying, you guys did not factor in climate into some of our investment decisions and you violated your fiduciary obligation. And the pension plan lost that lawsuit. Uh, you, know, you talked a little bit about the types of assets that we could be investing in. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, were, were rejecting certain areas um, and, uh, you know, like uh, fossil fuel investments, et cetera. Um, but The Economist uh, in the last couple of weeks was encouraging us to invest in venture capital, uh, particularly venture capital that was focused on uh, sustainability oriented initiatives um, because they saw big opportunities there and the chance for big returns. Now, this is a bit of a self-serving question, of course. Um, but what do you think uh, of venture capital to, to help tackle climate change? I, I think I think it's I think it's a huge opportunity. I mean, I, I I think venture capital actually has been not that successful. Let's talk about climate transition, right? So, just given if you look at the the cycle of venture capital. Um, significant and that's why a lot of funds and all that have been set up in the venture capital side which are longer term maybe not have the you know the seven eight year time horizon that you guys have because the belief is that to really kind of focus on technologies that truly move the needle that we're going to have a much longer time period and you know where you you all would invest would be taking things which are somewhat proven and trying to figure out how to scale it up and in in that case Typically, in, in the energy side and the energy infrastructure side, you need a lot more capital than, you know, what you'd be willing to do on a $3 million, $4 million kind of investment per transaction. So I think it's a bit of an enigma for, for classic venture capital in the whole energy transition space because, on the one hand, the risk is very high, but then when, the, when it's de-risked, the amount of money that's required is significantly too much for you to actually do. So let me, I mean, rather than this being, let me ask you, I mean, how do you think about that? Because I, I'm trying to learn this too, as to how how a tr- classic venture capitalist kind of plays in this whole climate transition, which is a massive opportunity. But at the same time, is this in the middle between being too risky and then when it's de-risk needs too much money and you just kind of, you know, you, you can't play in the middle over there. See, this is the problem with Harvard Business School professors. You ask them a question, they turn it right back on you. So it's uh, it's been my experience there. But uh, no, in, in all seriousness, I, I think you're absolutely right. You, you take uh, companies that have already proven something out, uh, and then you try to scale them, right? So uh, to take uh, pre-revenue risk is, is a big ask sometimes. Um, you also look for uh, sectors and segments that don't require a lot of capital, uh, as you were saying. You know, you don't really want to yeah. be in the energy generation space uh, where creating an electron costs you a lot of money 
uh, and no, uh, you know, every election looks the same, right? Um, why not go find spaces uh, where you can uh, find some differentiation uh, and, uh, and, you know, uh, back uh, some winners there? Um, you know, this is why we, we have the tagline of smart and a lot of what we try to do. You know, the smart yeah. city, smart industry, smart energy, because we're not trying to play the capital intensive game, but willing to, you know, work with entrepreneurs that are doing some very clever things, uh, uh, you know, around some of those assets. Uh, Remy, do you want to add something? Yeah, in fact, you know, I would, I would challenge you, Vikram, to find any mm. area of lack of sustainability in this world that we cannot, that we should not address through innovation. And to give you an example that is kind of counterintuitive, back to your point on the uh, uh, power production generation, you may know that uh, there are about $100 billion that is put in a big project for nuclear fusion, you know, the holy grade of uh, electricity yeah. production, which is, by the way, 50 kilometers from where I live in, in France here. But at the same time, you have five startups around the world funded by guys like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Jack Ma, so not anybody, mm -hmm. uh, funded with a few 10 or $50 million, and that are targeting the same objective of nuclear fusion. So again, I think that we are absolutely legitimate to get the ball rolling. Then, obviously, at some point... I totally agree with you, Remy, but see, but those, so when you talk about breakthrough energy ventures or again, these are, these are so-called family offices that are decided that this is important to them and they probably have a longer term time horizon, but a classic LPGP fund, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you necessarily are that, have a tougher time doing it because the time horizon is much longer and the potentially risk profile is higher. Am I correct? I, I just, I, I stand to be corrected. I, I'm just I, trying I, to learn. Look, I, I think you're correct for the, for a lot of assets that are out there. Um, you know, I, I'll put in a, a, a sort of a vote of support for the team here. That's why we've been doing it for 14 yeah. years, right? Um, you have to pick and choose yeah. where you can go and, and, and find the returns and the impact, right? Uh, I think that mm -hmm. uh, for, for newer groups, it's more challenging uh, because you can get suckered into capital intensive projects mm -hmm. or, or um, projects that are going to take a long time. Um, and so I, I think the, the other thing is that uh, the imperative that was sort of put forth on the last panel is, you know, we don't have a lot of time, right? Um, we need to find stuff yeah. that, that rolls very quickly. Um, and maybe that that's sort of a... But, a, a but, I, but I find, I, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I think COVID has... I mean, there are not a lot of, uh, I, mean, I mean, it's hard to talk about silver linings of COVID just given the devastation that it's had. But if you had to kind of identify some of the positives, I think this massive move towards digitization, I mean, you know, whether it be ed tech, health tech, agri tech, you know, uh, fintech uh, and clean tech, I mean, the fact is that what would have happened over the next five to 10 years has been compressed in nine months, which is absolutely phenomenal. And, and I think it will benefit the world in a tremendous manner. And, you know, obviously we need to get through the COVID thing, which is, which is, which is, uh, which is a catastrophe. And I think the, the, the other thing is the realization that, you know, what I was saying before that this whole issue of the, tragedy of the commons that it's not our problem, but it's everyone's problem and we don't really care. People realize that, you know, in, in health, in, 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 in climate, you know, you can't be wearing masks and have social distancing and clean your hands and the problem will kind of get, not go away, but the problem could be contained. 
yeah. climate cannot be contained. And, and so I think the realization that that and how people are coming together, I find in the last two, three months has actually been very, very promising. I, I think the pandemic uh, is obviously incredibly serious and, and, uh, and awful for many people, right? Um, the, the one bright yeah. thing it has done, it has encouraged people to take action about things that are in front of them. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, people for a long time were saying that there is a chance for a global pandemic. Uh, frankly, nobody did anything about it, and then it occurred. Uh, you know, those that have been warning about climate change, uh, I think, are taken much more seriously today because of the pandemic. The other thing that's very interesting about, uh, I think, the pandemic is, uh, you know, uh, certainly during the first lockdown here in Europe, people are willing to change their behavior. Yes. They change their behavior overnight. And one of the criticisms you always hear about those that are pushing sustainability initiatives is who wants to change? Okay. And you see overnight a society willing to change. So I, I think, you know, people understand that they can take action today and they need to take action today. And that's going to vote very well for a lot of entrepreneurs. Sorry, Ren. No, no. In fact, uh, I was about to say the same, huh, which is that when we are, it's quite reassuring in the sense that when we are facing extraordinary uh, threats, we can see that we are able to take extraordinary measures and to adjust very quickly. And in that sense, it is comforting for what is ahead, because what is ahead is a hundred times bigger than uh, than COVID. Correct. And, uh, and Correct. I want to ask you the, the, the next question I had in mind, given that you have been a uh, uh, impact policy advocate for long and teaching as well for a few years. Do you see the right change of mentality, the, the right change of mindset with the yeah. people, especially the students, the next generation who will take power yeah. that you would like to see at the speed at which you would like to see it? No, I, I think I think I am. And I think it's um, so if I look at the if I look at the constituents, uh, Remy, you know, you, like this, there are three three buckets here. There are a lot of the courses that I'm or the course that I teach is really from an investor lens, which is how we wrote the course on on ETF two and in your investment in e-leather and how we kind of deal with it. But there's the investor piece. There's the corporate piece. And then there's the regulation and the government piece. And, and the fourth bucket are the individuals, the citizens of the world. And I, and I think in each one of them, there is an enormous increased momentum on trying to come. And, and I don't think each, any one of these four can actually solve the problem. They all four need to come together and they need to reinforce each other through incentives, through push, through aggressive action, whatever it may be. So it's a combination of the stick and carrot on all four. And I see, I think the investor community is much, I mean, I'm just looking at the last two, three years. I mean, you can still criticize people for greenwashing and marketing and all this other stuff. But I think you're generally having a lot more interest on the part of the investor community, particularly because they're long-term oriented. This move towards passive investing, and by definition, I'm a passive investor. I own the market, so I got to do something about this. I can't just sell stocks. So there's there's a big big push on the investor side. We talk a lot this about in our class. I'm seeing and COVID actually. So if I look, if I did interviews with boards and CEOs like a couple of years back, climate was important. A lot of them people got it much more than others. But in the last nine months, the ESG factors like front and center on board discussions and management discussions. And I think where people are moving towards is also not just talking about it, but linking incentives and compensation and all that to some very critical ESG kind of metrics. And I, I keep G separately because G's, I, I, sometimes I wonder why ESG is all together, whether they're not. 
So keep G separately. So keep in the E and the S and, and S particularly in the last nine months. So that's, that's the second piece. And I think, you know, we, we talked about in the previous discussion about regulation, Europe clearly is ahead, ahead of the curve. You know, if you have a change, I mean, a change in regular change in government here in the U.S., you probably see more of it. We do need to have some regulation which requires some consistent disclosure, uh, whether it be the impact weighted accounts initiative kind of thing that we're doing at Harvard or whatever it may be. You know, I, I you know, it took 100 years for FASB and it will take time for so-called SASB or something similar like that to happen here. But having some sort of you know, regulation which requires consistent disclosure. And it doesn't have to be across all the same disclosure across all industries. What I like about SASB and some of the work that we've done at Harvard, along with George, is that each industry has got five or six material ESG fact things that matter to the company. So let's just focus on those. And SASB has done a great job of breaking that down. And from a regulation standpoint, if you just focus, this is what you need to disclose, It'll help enormously. I mean, you know, you you change behavior based on what you measure. And I think the fourth is the consumer and the students and everything else. Massive momentum. That I clearly see on campus. So I'm generally an optimist. <laughs> um, you know, and, and as I said, the, 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 the COVID has obviously been a catastrophe for, and it's, you know, had, had such negative things on taking lives and negative health implications and seriously negative economic implications. But I think if you look five years from now, you could look back and say, hey, look, there, there are a lot of, lot of things that happen in terms of behavioral change in this time, which, which are going to help us in the long run. Vikram, we're coming up on the half hour. So I think with that, we should end the, uh, the, the webinar. I just want to point out that when I was at Harvard Business School, there were five of us that took the environmental class, uh, of which only two of us were business school students. Yeah, and I'll say I'll say on that. You know, we've just launched just so for the benefit of the audience. We're doing a client. They have these new short intensive programs at Harvard, which is like four day things, which we implemented four or five years ago on a specific topic that may be of interest. So George Serafim and I, we decided to do a, a short intensive program on climate finance, financing climate in January. It was sold out, and we we actually had to cut it off because they they don't take more than seventy five students per per class. Well, and Rick and that's what I was going to say. You know, uh, five when I did it, literally hundreds that are doing it today, which is both a, yeah. uh, a comment on how important this issue is, and frankly, how good the teaching is. So, uh, well done, Rickham. Many thanks for joining us. And, thank uh, you for having me. Thank you, Remy. Thanks for th thank you. Everybody needs Rickham to find me. Sorry, Remy. No, no, I'll join the next session, Vikram, as a student. And maybe as a Oh, yes, please. You're most, you know, next time we teach the ETF case, because we teach the ETF case and Rob always comes as a guest. So you please come as a guest too. <laughs> We'd love to have you. All right. Many thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainability Talks podcast. To find out more or join as a guest, head over to the ETF Partners website at www.etfpartners.capital. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn or follow us on Medium at ETF Partners. So until next time, thanks for listening.